Hi, I'm Lalita Krishnan and you're listening to episode 32 of Heart of Conservation. You can listen to Heart of Conservation on several platforms, but you can also read the transcript on my blog, Earthy Matters. Today we're going to be talking about an animal that is an old relative of the elephant, but it lives in water. I'm talking of the dugong, spelled D-U-G-O-N-G. It's also a cousin of the manatee. The dugong is a marine mammal that once lived in large numbers in Indian coastal waters, but we know very little about them. I'm very excited to be speaking to not one, but three amazing researchers, Prachi Hatkar, Chinmaya Ganekar, and Swapnali Gole of their work with dugongs and their habitats in India. Prachi is a PhD scholar, project fellow, camper recovery of dugongs and the habitats in India at Wildlife Institute of India. Currently, she is working on seagrass-associated fauna in the Gulf, Kutch and Gujarat. Chinmaya is a wildlife biologist and a certified scuba diver. She is currently working on projects involving seagrass, fish, dugongs and their threats under camper, recovery of dugongs and the habitats in India. She is pursuing a PhD in seagrass-associated fish and works in the Gulf of Manar and Park Bay region. Swapnali is a marine researcher and a National Geographic explorer. Affiliated with Wildlife Institute of India, she has been working on the insular populations of dugongs in the Andamans and Nicobar Islands, India, for the last seven years. Between the three of them, I think they have all the dugong habitats of India covered. Also, a very special thank you to Dr. J.A. Johnson, scientist and faculty at Wildlife Institute of India, and also head of the Department of Habitat Ecology, for facilitating this conversation. And of course, to the lovely ladies on my screen, thank you so much for making the time, and welcome to Heart of Conservation. So, Avnali, do you want to talk about what are gongs? Of course, yeah. So uh, when I generally start introducing dugongs, uh, what I've experienced is there is a big question mark on everybody's face on, okay, did you say it right? Do you want to say dolphin? Are you talking about some, you know, whale species? So generally we are like always bombarded or, you know, greeted with these kind of reactions. Dugong is a very simple, I would, I would put it out as it is a very simple, elusive animal which is a marine mammal species. So what are marine mammals is uh, the animals which live their life in the sea. Of course, there are variations. There are some marine mammals which partly live in the sea and partly on land. But dugongs are exclusively marine mammals, which means right from the, when they are born to till the time they die, they spend their entire life cycle in the sea. And they, they are just like dolphins and whales, which are also marine mammals. But they are like the most popularly known marine mammals as compared to dugongs. So, uh, dugongs are also commonly called as sea cows. So, the reason being, uh, dugong is the only exclusively herbivorous marine mammal, which means it the only diet which dugongs prefer is uh, a vegetarian diet in a very layman's language. So, and they are generally found across 42 countries in the world globally, in the Indo-Pacific belt, out of which in India, we have only three distribution sites, that is Gujarat, Tamil Nadu, and Andaman and Nicobar Islands. So if people have to remember dugong as they are animals which live in the sea, they give birth to animals, they don't lay eggs like other marine species and there is a very strong parental care in dugongs. So since the baby or the calf is born, the calf will be dependent on the mother dugong throughout 
you know, for at least one to two years very strongly. And then these mothers nurse the babies. So, which is why they fall in the category of marine mammals. Marine means related to the sea and mammal means the animals which give birth to the calves and not the eggs. Yeah. Okay. This is so interesting. There's so much we really don't know. And, you know, how long have you been researching dugongs and how extensive is the area you work in, you know, in these three different uh, parts of India? So I've been working in Gulf of Kutch for now five years. Uh, the Gulf of Kutch is actually situated between the Saurashtra and the Kutch Peninsula. So it is about the coastline of the Gulf of Kutch is about 170 kilometer long, which starts from the Okha to the inner Gulf. And uh, the mouth is about 75 kilometer at the uh, wide. It's wide at the mouth, about 75 kilometer, which, and the water uh, spreads around 7,300 kilometers square across the Gulf of Kutch. So the Gulf of Kutch is a marine national park and marine sanctuary, which was uh, actually posted in 1985, which was the first Indian marine sanctuary which was declared. And uh, it is it has 42 islands, which covers various habitats like sea grasses, corals, mangroves, uh, and uh, intertidal zones, etc. And what about you, Chinmaya? So I have been similar to Prachi. I have been also working in Tamil Nadu, uh, Gulf of Mannar and Park Bay. These are like two regions of the separate seas. One comes uh, in Bay of Bengal, which is Park Bay. One comes part of Indian Ocean, which is Gulf of Mannar. So we kind of work at the confluence of both of them. Uh, the area, if I want to describe, it's a long, long stretch of Indian coastline uh, around 500 kilometers. Mm. So from Adhiram Patnam, if you consider till Kalnyakumari, it's approximately 500 kilometers of the shoreline. And then the sea extends to, uh, in Park Bay, it extends to Sri Lanka, but because of international borders, we cannot access that area as much. But we generally restrict our uh, work to 10 to 12 kilometers off coast. So it is around 5,000 square kilometers we cover uh, for our study for dugongs and seagrasses and other fauna. Also the uh, other factors of the project. Uh, and to tell you about Park Bay, it is a very uh, close sea. It's like if you see Park Bay, like I saw Park Bay for the first time I and I thought it was a lake. It's very uh, calm and uh, very uh, glass-like water most of the time. Uh, but Gulf of Mannar on the opposite hand has waves and islands and it's com these are two completely different areas so um, working in both of them is pretty different uh, from each other Park Bay has a lot of sea grasses Gulf of, Gulf of Mannar has coral sea grasses uh, algal beds rocky patches a lot like a habitat diversity so to say so uh, it is very uh, we can encompass everything uh, of marine habitat, most of the things of marine habitats uh, in both of these areas. It's amazing. That also means that the, the dugong likes both these habitats. Oh, yeah. They do. They definitely do. So interesting. Swapnali? Uh, yeah. So I've been working in the Antipan Nicobar Islands on dugongs since more than seven years now. And then our study site, if you see the, because it's an insular setup, the, you know, it adds up to the work of uh, our team because the entire stretch is around 1,962 kilometers right from the topmost or the northernmost uh, island that is landfall till Great Nicobar it is 1,962 kilometers 
and uh, we have more than 800 islands like 836 to be approximate uh, precise and and on each island then there is another coast because it's an island so the coastline gets uh, you know we have more study area to cover i would say because for every island there are like four coasts and then what we have been doing is uh, we work in patches because it's not possible that considering the manpower which we have it is not possible for us to be spatially present everywhere so we started our surveys with say north and middle andaman and then we covered and like slowly coming towards the southern side and then very recently we could cover the nicobar group of islands so practically the entire andaman and nicobar is our study sounds like a lifetime of work ahead it it is was it was it took us 6 years to do that whatever yeah. we did and that was like yeah very intense and when you mean team how many people do you have working you know wherever you all are like what size teams are you all working talking about for the islands we never had a team more than 3 year so there was a lot to do always so <laughs> I, i don't know why but we had the like the smallest team ever and then you know two people three people i uh, for the seagrass and dubong work especially we had like the, the maximum i remember of is like a team of four never more than that so yeah okay <laughs> i have been fortunate enough to like work with team of eight people like eight people on a board working on different different aspects of the project and then we work together it's like amazing but there are also sometimes where there are just two people who are going by an auto to a coast and then doing their surveys and coming back so it is very like variation all across the years hmm. great prachi i'm going to ask you this question just to know more about uh, dugong i mean if a dugong were a person how would you describe it i would i would like to describe dugong as a gentle giant because uh, the homemade stories that we have been hearding so that was actually derived from the dugong and if you see dugong they look similar to somewhat uh, pig you can say or mermaid because the the stories that we have been hearing from the sailors that we have been uh, seeing mermaids in the sea so they were actually not mermaids they were actually the dugongs that were they were actually seeing and perceiving it as a mermaid so where did these stories come from so yeah, it was actually given by christopher columbus okay <laughs> then uh, also uh, so in his excerpts when he was uh, voyaging around towards west indies sites he has written that you know i happened to see three mermaids today but then they are not as beautiful as they have been described because dugongs honestly speaking do not look like mermaids only the tail resembles the um, uh, you know mermaid and also it, it, it later on it was also dissected as maybe he did not see a dugong he saw manatees which are the sisters of the mermaids you know? right right uh chinmaya could you tell me where can we find uh, dugongs in the india of course we now know uh and the world sure so in india as we have already mentioned it's gujarat tamil nadu and andaman nicobar uh so these three areas have been it's like pockets if you see the map it is like one pocket on the left hand side of the map one on the south and one on the right hand side so uh this indian it is a pocket we call it a pocket distribution uh, of dugongs but in case of the world scenario we have uh, most number of dugongs as of now are in australia uh so after that we have this population in the red sea so that is also kind of pockets 
so these uh, mostly are distributed in indo pacific region uh, very technically saying and uh, they are there uh, in the island countries like philippines and indonesia all these um, southeast asian countries also they, they are there in our neighboring countries like sri lanka so it's a uh, extend from uh, indian ocean to the pacific ocean uh, completely but china had dugongs a uh, few years ago and very sadly they have uh, now declared them as functionally extinct so the population cannot grow anymore basically so they don't have dugongs anymore which is kind of a sad news but something to be we should be alarmed of that the populations in other countries also are quite threatened and we should look at them and give them that importance they deserve oh true Swarnali, you know, when she was talking of habitats and in an islands and things, where do they, what do they prefer? Tell us uh, also where they prefer to live and a little bit about their biology, you know, uh, how long do they live, what size do they grow, etc. I know you call them gentle giants, but uh, uh, exactly how big? Yeah, fine. So, dugongs uh, generally spend considerable time of in a day also i'm talking but not just the whole life uh, in the shallow waters now this is directly linked to the sea grasses which they feed upon and sea grasses being true plants they need sunlight just like any other plant even on land for creating their own energy that is the photosynthesis process and so wherever light reaches the water column and this is a very local uh, concept so in andaman for example the water is very much clear so the light is going to reach in much deeper regimes as compared to say Gujarat or Tamil Nadu where the waters are really turbid. So depending on how deep the sunlight reaches, uh, it decides on where sea grasses will be found and that automatically regulates on where dugongs will be found. So it is a very linked thing. And because dugongs primarily feed on sea grasses, wherever their food is, their distribution is going to be centered around those areas the most. And the depth differs places to places. That being one. Also, there have been tagging experiments done in Australia where it has been scientifically proven that more than 70 to 80 percent time of one day, dugongs have been found in sheltered waters, say one meter to five meters, because they were spending a lot of time just feeding on seagrasses. So, in on a similar line, dugongs, as I said, that they feed on seagrasses, one adult dugong will uh, eat up to say 35 to 40 kgs of seagrasses. That is a lot of seagrass for an individual. And when I say an adult dugong, it goes up to 3.5 to 4 meters now. So the gentle giant uh, size limit is up to 4 meters. Dugongs generally are not recorded to grow more than that. Say you have never heard of uh, you know any example where a dugongs of were of 7 meters, 8 meters. Generally, people mistake dugongs. Uh, there have been misidentification in my experience also where they spotted my informant spotted a whale and then thought it is a dugong. And then they were like, what the 10 meter lambata? That is biologically not possible because the upper limit for dugongs is 3.5 to 4 meters. When a dugong calf is born, it is around 0.9 to 1.2 meters size range and around 40 kgs. But as the baby grows older and it puts on weight after eating a lot of sea grasses, the maximum weight of dugongs, I can say, can go up to 350 to 400 kgs wow. on an average. Yeah, that that which is why they are called as gentle giants because they are yeah. massive. Yeah, yeah. they are like very docile uh, animals. Yeah. but when you also say up to four meters, uh, is this like historically this has been their size? I don't know if there's ever been any fossil finds or you know. 
Yeah, whatever documentation we have come across where dugongs have been mentioned, it is always been beneath the size range of you know three point five to four meters. Relatives of dugongs, there was an, a species called stellar sea cow, which was really massive, which was much larger than dugongs in size. But if you talk about the species called dugong, then the upper limit of dugong size is always given as three point five to four meters. Okay, thank you so much, Prachi. Now to you. You know, the term uh, seagrass meadow, it paints such a lovely picture in, in the imagination. So what are these uh, seagrass meadows really like? And also I read that dugongs regulate seagrass ecosystems. How so? So uh, as Bapnali had earlier mentioned that uh, dugongs are vegetarians, so they only prefer grass. So the seagrass are present so the shallow waters where the dugongs reside so basically it is residing for its food the seagrasses beds they graze upon the seagrasses beds they usually uh, regulate the biomass of the seagrasses or the density where the so uh, in a clear crystal water and under months the seagrass bed just looks like it's a football uh, uh, football football ground basically so it will be just uh, like spread across the whole land. So that is how a beautiful site this, that looks like. And uh, Dugong prefers some uh, species, which is Halodula uh, specifically. Halodula and Halophila species, they have uh, rich uh, fiber content, uh, sorry, uh, low fiber content and rich nitrogen content. So they basically graze upon the seagrass meadows, regulating the biomass and the uh, type of the varieties of the seagrass meadows that grows into the sea. So they actually act as a gardener. Are you covering different aspects of dugong research in the Gulf of Manar, uh, you know, the Gulf of Kutch and the Andamans? Yeah, so, uh, so to talk about uh, Tamil Nadu, Park, the Gulf of Manar, uh, we are covering uh, research aspects of dugong and seagrasses in the project. We are also covering the outreach and capacity building and th this is true for both the other sides. So these are the main four objectives and uh, which are divided into a lot of smaller sections. Something uh, like if we say dugong research, we are looking at where dugongs are distributed, uh, what are they eating, where are they going, uh, if they are breeding in some areas, uh, how are they, uh, are they sighted frequently? So these are kind of questions we answer with dugongs. With seagrasses, we look at what all species are there, what are types of meadows are there, what are associated species uh, like fish which uh, on which my PhD is based upon. So I'm looking at uh, how seagrasses and fish interact with each other, how are they dependent on each other. So uh, this is not exactly, uh, you would say, a direct connection uh, to sea. But uh, when we say fish, it we obviously think of food. And we have already addressed this in the previous question where dugongs are regulating the seagrasses and seagrasses are dependent uh, or seagrasses um, are uh, habitat for fish. We are connected to dugongs. So this connection uh, and the layers in between we are trying to uh, study in. So uh, my main focus is uh, there are two things. One, uh, I mentioned about seagrass associated fish. So what is the diversity? How do they utilize seagrasses? So are they uh, using the space between leaves? Are they eating seagrasses? Are they hiding in it? Are they putting eggs in it? So 
these kind of questions i'm answering uh in terms of dugongs i have mostly looked at the distribution of dugongs the threats associated with them so there are many many threats uh, like a boat a uh, boat uh, dashing or net entanglement or pollution or coastal development all of these uh, the threats we generally hear about the marine system they are also thre uh, threats for dugongs so we also study that something like plastic pollution uh and then we have also looked at primarily what dugongs eat in india so uh, the dugong research in india has not looked into that before this so me and my one of my colleagues sumit uh, have done the gut content so when we get a dead dugong we get get the gut out uh, the gut content out of it and we see what sea grasses they have eaten and what are they preferring and we also have found some plastic fragments into that so those aspects we uh, as in the research point of view we look into and in the outreach and capacity building mostly we interact with people different stakeholders like forest department police marine police all of those and try to make them aware about dugong and give them more and more trainings to uh, kind of continuously monitor the dugong and their habitats well yes. said so it's not one mammal but the whole world around it my next question was about, you know, uh, Swapnali, if you could, interacting with fishers and other folks in the coast that you work in, you know, what have their reactions been and uh, what are the challenges and um, how do dugongs behave when they encounter humans? I mean, are they are we threats to them or what are the threats are there? Sorry, that's a lot of questions. No, the first question is always my favorite question. Honestly, it's all about communities and that is my favorite part, honestly speaking, in the whole uh, work I have done to talk with people, the local people. So it started with me just interacting with the fishermen because, you know, for all the marine researchers, the primary stakeholder always are the fishing folks of that particular area because they have practically spent their entire life by the sea. And nobody actually can beat that kind of knowledge, no degree, no university, honestly speaking, because the uh, interaction which they have with the sea and the creatures living in the sea is immense and so we started talking with the fishermen initially to just understand their idea or their uh, perception about dugongs and seagrasses also on where where dugongs and seagrasses are found so that that could be used as a baseline for our research work and eventually we started talking with many other people who are going out in the sea in Andaman, the benefit is because the entire area is an insular setup. Uh, whether you are a sea person or not, you have to be dependent on the sea for even commuting from one island to the other. So your interface with the sea and these areas is going to be very much very pronounced. So we started talking to different stakeholders like, you know, sailors, so scuba divers, or uh, uh, for the first time, Indian Navy and Indian Coast Guard, because these there are many, many regions in the islands which are, first of all, geographically isolated. So considering the limited logistics which we have, we don't get to go to these islands always. Second, there are restricted areas. So there is a defense restricted area. So there is a tribal restricted area. So again, as researchers, we don't have permits or we need to, you know, work on the permits a lot. And that takes a considerable time. So we started targeting different stakeholder agencies who are seafarers. That was the only mandate required to be a part of this program, which eventually turned out to be, uh, you know, something called as the Dugong Monitoring Program. 
citizen science approach. And initially, whenever we interacted with these stakeholders, not just fishermen, but other people also, uh, there was this big question mark on their face, as I had mentioned in the opening statement also. When you say dugong, people are like, what? Are you talking about dolphin? Are you sure? And then multiple times, they also correct us. They say, no, madam, you're talking about dolphin. And we are like, no, we are talking about dugongs. So that was the kind of response which we got initially. That there, most of the people in my experience were clueless about what we are studying or, you know, what. And the saddest part is dugong is the state animal of Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Really? So even in local, yeah. And even in schools, we were surprised that the school kids, the local school kids were not aware of what a dugong is. So our work starts with that. It's it's like, as Jinmaya mentioned, there are so many elements to this particular work which we are doing. So it, it starts with research, but it massive, massive chunk of our work at three all the three sites is sensitization of the people. Right from Dugong's or the species identity that, you know, species why is it important and how you can contribute to saving Dugong's is in nutshell, if I have to put that is the kind of work we are doing at three sites. And your second question, uh, Dugong's, I mean, I would not say that Dugong's avoid humans because in Andaman especially, there is an island called Shahidwe, which is full of tourists. There is so much of anthropogenic footprint in that area. There are boat traffic. There is and every sort of boats you'll see there, right? From inter-island ferry boat to speed vessels to normal dungi boats of fishermen. All sort of boats are there in the water and dugongs are still coming to those areas again and again. And this has been uh, said globally also that, you know, in places like uh, Southeast Asia, which, which are like hub of harbors and, you know, anthropogenic footprints. Duongs are still coming to those areas. So maybe also I would like to add that Duongs behave individualistically too, which goes for any species. So even in Andaman, in Shahid Weep, I have seen that Duongs are coming in areas where there is a lot of uh, human interface. But, you know, a neighboring island group, which is a marine national park area, there, when we spotted a dugong and we got into the water, this is my personal experience, that individuals just swam away, swam away to the other island altogether. So maybe because the, those dugong individuals were inside a marine protected area and not used to human interface, they were not okay with humans coming closer to them. Okay. But in some other area where humans are like every day coming in and out, maybe the dugongs living in that area have become adapted to that particular, you know, traffic or pressure. Yeah. That is so interesting. Thank you. Can I add something to the previous of course, question? Please. Very, very recently, like a week ago, a fisherman told us uh, on phone call that we are seeing uh, dugongs here every day, which is in Gulf of Mannar, uh, and which is kind of a, a tourist area. Forest department also has tourism there. So he says that whenever we go out for fishing, we see dugongs daily and they come near the boat. Like at a distance, you can almost peg them. So this is kind of a uh, different interaction they have and they kind of now it is a friendship between them so the boat comes the dugong comes and then they see it they feel happy about it so it is also a very very positive interaction between the community and the dugong that's such a wonderful thing it's already making me love the dugong <laughs> mammal i've never seen in my life <laughs> yeah but the dolphins also behave like that. Maybe that's one of the reasons they 
mistake them maybe uh, but like people will have different interactions with different individuals or population differently like sopnali rightly said there are individual reactions so something like in the red sea if you suppose follow a hashtag dugong on instagram you will every day see a photo of red sea where a dugong is there surrounded by divers and it's feeding it's kind of sleeping or doing its thing uh but that doesn't happen here so the individualistic behavior is very pronounced and it might vary with different populations also so the dugong has also been accorded the highest protection uh status in that is schedule 1 of the wildlife protection act of 1972 so uh, how does it uh, translate in the real world would one of you like to answer that so uh wildlife protection act Uh, it it is considered one of the strongest conservation uh, act in the world because it has schedules it has listed a lot of animals which should receive protection uh, so there are different schedules uh, in the wildlife protection act giving different status of protection uh, to different species so the infamous thing is tiger out of that so tiger has schedule one protection so the dugongs have so it is the highest kind of protection the uh, wildlife protection act can provide uh, in that you cannot so there are so so many restrictions in that like uh, you cannot touch that animal you cannot research that animal without permissions you cannot utilize any part of the animal uh, in that case any like even if it is excreta which happens in ambergris like whale it is still part of the whale so we, you cannot utilize that so these kind of you to even just touch that animal you need permissions it's that kind of uh, protection sorry even a dead yeah, even yes yes even for dead animals so we uh, wildlife institute of india has acquired all the permissions and then we collect those samples and work with it but uh, so this kind of protection we always need uh, permissions for the government and government has been very very strict about it always so we cannot work without permission let us anyway so uh, this protection act specifically so i'll give you an example uh, which happened in thondi with when i joined the project thondi is in pagbe so it was a case of dugong hunting uh, and that was a like it created a lot of fishermen agitation because it is part of their tradition and we still struggle with it uh, so they hunted it marine police uh, kind of uh, put charges on them their boat was confiscated net was confiscated they were put in jail for seven straight years and these are fishermen i'm talking about uh, uh, like age of 50 so this uh, it completely kind of like put all the restrictions on their life they cannot get the boat back they have kind of the lost all the uh, money they have put in for getting all those equipments everything so the implementation of it is pretty strict in the real uh, real world uh, there is one more story like in uh, when i was going for uh, going on one boat and uh, by mistake there was some communication gap between the forest uh, higher forest official and the field people and they did not allow me to uh, go on a boat and uh, do research on dugong so it is that strict to have all the things in place and it is wildlife protection act actually make things happen at least in case of dugongs which i have seen personally
It's actually a good thing, isn't it? In a, in a way, it's protecting the animal, which is what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it, it might be more yeah. difficult. But yeah, when... But it is not it, definitely as straightforward as it might have sounded in, uh, in the answer. <laughs> it has a lot of agencies <laughs> that come into it. Uh, but then it happens. It does happen. Okay, great. Prachi, what, what part of your research do you like personally? Or what was your most amazing uh, takeaway or encounter? So, uh, since I already mentioned that I've been working on dugongs from the past five years, but to, uh, when I started working in Gujarat, uh, like Swapnali said, when we went for the awareness programs in schools, also when we interacted with the locals or the fishermen, so they mentioned that they had sighted dugongs in uh, Gujarat, uh, Gulf of Kutch, long back, like 15 or 20 years back. So recently, they haven't... Uh, seen any dugongs, live dugongs as such and we were fortunate enough that we got to see a live dugong which was the first photographic evidence in Gulf of Kutch two years oh, back that we uh, got to yeah so that <laughs> we got to do the drone survey that one of my colleagues accompanied me on the field where we were going for the seagrass mapping uh, that time we could actually see and there were actually two dugongs that really? we had sighted. Were they like of the same size? Yeah, they were actually adult size. So we thought that we could actually sight any uh, mother and calf pairs that we sight another side. So, but uh, that was fortunate enough that actually we sighted at least dugong and we can say, okay, uh, okay the dugongs are not locally extinct from Gujarat. They're still right. present. That's a positive sighting. Uh, Swapnali, how about you? Yeah, so on a similar line, uh, I have spent like more than seven years studying dugongs. And my first sighting uh, from boat, I had spotted dugongs because honestly speaking, in Andaman, it is pretty much possible to spot a dugong considering, uh, you know, the water is also clean and all those elements. But uh, my first underwater sighting, despite diving so much throughout the islands, happened after five years, you know. And I remember I had spent like almost 45 minutes with this individual, which was, I mean, I had obviously given up all the hopes and then when I spotted that individual it was like wow all the you know your entire journey as a Dubong researcher flashes right in front of you and then I was literally crying underwater my mask was crying underwater and I was so happy and then I realized that I had left all my friends who were diving with me behind and I was like literally following the individual and those 44, 45 minutes, it was just me and the duo, you know. And it was it was a surreal moment for me. And then I was like a very happy soul. That, okay, <laughs> finally, whatever hard work we have put. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that was, was an exclusive. Who gets, first of all, who gets 45 minutes alone with an animal? You're extremely lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am lucky. I have, I'm like, I have so much of gratitude for that, those 45 yeah. minutes. But you all also deserve it for the work you'll have done. That is your reward to see a free, happy <laughs> dugong, you know, living yes. in its healthy, uh, healthy animal living in its habitat. Yeah. So great. Inma, do you want to add to that? The first ever dugong sighting, live dugong sighting I had because I was 
dying to dying dying to see a dugong because everybody was telling you they saw dugong they saw dugong here they saw dugong there and you are not seeing one it's frustrating it's very frustrating after spending long long time in field so uh, the like i was talking about the other work we were doing for different aspects of seagrasses and other associated fauna we were doing that so we kind of sit on the boat and sieve the sand out so i was doing the sieving and behind me i just like heard this loud breath in the water loud loud breath and i like left the sieve uh, from my hand and i turned around and i saw a tail of dugong which is going under water and i cannot tell you how beautiful that was i it was just i i have picture memory of that and i really want to see that again but a first experience will always be special and this is special yeah true you know talking of breath are they vocal yes so they are vocal very much uh, they chirp actually like birds do they do they actually chirp underwater because that's how i as you know that uh, sound travels four times faster in uh, underwater rather than land so obviously there is the only communication that they work it on underwater sound in relation to what this prachi said uh, so yeah there are different categories of vocalization patterns which have been uh, you know identified for dugongs we don't have unfortunately any dugong vocalization study happened in india by wi or any other researchers but in japan people have studied dugong vocalization patterns a lot so they have categorized dugong vocalization patterns as you know they also bark so it's a different frequency range for each kind of category and then there is chirp as prachi has mentioned but then there is also a possibility that dugongs will vocalize very rarely only when it is truly needed they are not like dolphins who echolocate and communicate they so there have been studies where you know the sample size of efforts which researchers have put forward to study dugong communication patterns has been immense but as compared to the efforts which have gone the recordings of dugong communication has been uh, you know they have been very few so that is also one point to be understood that not always do dugongs communicate as dolphins do or other marine mammals do sounds like such a self sufficient mammal and also very smart what is the role of uh, wildlife institute of uh, india in uh, dugong conservation and what are the government initiatives in place right now for protecting it and what is the way forward and i always ask three questions <laughs> yeah because they are connected very much to each other <laughs> as wildlife institute is part of government though it is autonomous it is it works very very closely with government and different different departments not only forest department we also work with as soknali mentioned indian navy coast guard all of these are defense bodies so wildlife institute of india has initiated uh, this campa dugong recovery program uh, in 2016 so from that time and soknali is the most eligible person to comment on that as she is like the first one of the first researchers from wii who has started work on dugongs uh, before that in 2013 dr shivkumar and uh, one more researcher called aditi nair they uh, both had a research program regarding dugongs uh, in all these three states uh, 
Gujarat, Tamil Nadu and Andaman Nicobar, uh, where they have seen the perspective of people of uh, about dugongs, specifically the local communities who interact with the sea on a daily basis. And from that, they had come up with uh, something called as critical dugong habitats, where uh, dugongs the sightings or the population is more and also the human uh, pressure is lot in the area so those the both things combined are called critical dugong habitats and based on that uh, we started our work in the campa dugong uh, recovery program but we uh, as i mentioned earlier we started with four objectives one is dugong uh, research other is seagrass and associated fauna research one is outreach and other is capacity building so wia has been actively working in all four of the uh, objectives the research we have the like little bit touched about uh, now that what kind of research we do but in outreach programs there is this uh, one highlighted program called dugong scholarship program which is a very novel initiative as the fishermen kids are targeted so we go schools to schools and uh, identify fishermen kids and we give scholarships to them which is uh, 200 uh, 500 rupees per month and these scholarships are given at such a time where suppose uh, in 9th or 11th where uh, they might not have money to uh, give like go for further education kind of a thing so at least they will have this one uh, 10th ka certificate or 12th certificate which is at least basic level of education we would expect from someone so at that time this scholarship is given uh, and through them uh, as swapnali mentioned the dugong volunteer network or monitoring uh, program network so their parents being fishermen they also provide us information so we give them the scholarship and we get the information it's a barter and it's a very beautiful barter because we uh, get to know so many things which we might not be uh, knowing about dugongs through research papers because local things are like the local experiences somebody somebody's father who is fishing from last maybe 20 years he will have a uh, experience which we might not even expect of so something like the dugong french story we told so this uh, dugong scholarship program has immensely grown in all the three rain states and we have uh, now about 500 students who are part of that program and we will continue it in next few years also in the capacity building specifically so capacity building the world says itself that we need to strengthen our uh, like stakeholders capacity so we give them scuba diving programs or uh, drone training programs to monitor and understand more about their habitats because in the end maybe we will be there or somebody else will come but the forest department or the other stakeholders they are going to stay forever so they are the people who should actually uh, see this diversity and like have long term monitoring and wi is kind of hand holding them all the time and it's not only true for dugong projects it's most of the outreach uh, and research combined projects wi has hand holding is the huge huge part uh, which we play all the time
uh we also have given like uh, marine mammal stranding workshop which happened in tamil nadu to uh, state veterinarians and the range forest officers so in that what happens is so uh, you see all the time these videos on facebook mm-hmm. or somewhere in the news that a whale got stranded or a dolphin mm-hmm. got stranded or the turtles are dead something like that so in that situation it is pretty unique a situation because we don't know what to do if it is a live animal we maybe want to rescue it but how we don't know uh, or if it is a dead animal if to bury it what samples to collect what information can we get out of it because marine mammals being very uh, distinct we cannot like as researchers or as forest officials also we cannot interact with them on daily basis because that's not only part of the job we do there are so many other things so this kind of data points so if suppose a dugong gets stranded uh we can actually understand the size of it maybe why uh it has been dead or is there anything other associated information like the gut content i was talking about so this this kind of response to create this kind of response there should be trained people and there should be veterinarians to understand what the reason of the death is or are there any diseases are there any infections all those kinds veterinarians are most equipped people to understand that so giving them training on what to do how to do was a huge huge part uh, of that uh, workshop we also came up with a book on how uh, how to respond to these events and that workshop is hopefully going to get repeated uh, with other set of people so more and more people can be aware of what to do so these kind of workshops uh, wii always uh, provides and like to strengthen uh, the data collection and it in the end it all strengthens our understanding of dugongan seagrass population and of course other marine life population so so to say about the government um, government has been very proactive in dugong uh, conservation very uh, recently this is a huge success story for government that uh, Dugong Conservation Reserve has been declared in Park Bay, North Park Bay, which is around a fifty kilometer stretch and ten kilometer offshore, so approximately five hundred square kilometer area, which is specifically designated for dugong conservation. And this is the first uh, conservation reserve for dugongs in the country. Wow. So we are giving them. The government has notified it in twenty twenty two. and uh, now they are coming up with the management plan and how to involve local people how to give uh, more training to the like somebody maybe stakeholders like tourists so they are planning a dugong conservation center a interpretation center where, where people can go and learn more about dugongs maybe snorkel and see the fishes and sea grasses and all of that so this is a government initiative and then they are doing it really really proactively No, good to know. I mean, there's so much work you are doing, including uh, individually as organization and the government. That's really great. Okay. Yeah. The next question, uh, Prati, I'm going to start with you. Could you share a word that will help us understand our, our vocabulary of dugongs? You know, maybe a concept or a word or something that's important or significant to you. So- so it is like uh, as we can say it is a part of our uh, marine life and it needs to be preserved 
for the fact that I didn't know about Dugong before coming or joining the project. I really? literally heard when the advertisement came up, and I actually didn't know that such animal existed. That if that is only a vegetarian mammal, and it is still surviving. And uh, earlier, it had four. Uh, I mean, uh, the cousins that the uh, manatees that are already there, but that are basically uh, they are uh, living in the fresh water. This is this one was the only marine animal which is still surviving. after so so many uh, years and that is very incredible and that that's the thought that we should be saving this marine animal which is which will be extinct if we don't take any efforts no thank you what about you swapnali yeah if i have to send this message across in one word i would say that people should remember the word umbrella you know whenever uh, it rains and then we open the umbrella whoever is standing under the umbrella gets saved from the rains right that is exactly that is exactly what dugongs are for seagrass meadows it is also called as an umbrella species so if you save okay. dugongs you save seagrasses as chitmaya said she is working on fishes you save yeah. fishes i am working me and prachi are working on associated macroinvertebrates uh, of seagrass habitats for our pcs they also get saved every single individual which is associated with seagrasses including the bombs will get saved if you just save the bombs so it's an umbrella that's it yeah yeah fantastic and eventually the humans around all those habitats exactly and also the economy exactly sorry i missed out on that but yeah. also the people who are dependent on sea grasses right. will be saved yeah well put thanks chinmaya do you want to have the last word i would say family okay because it is such a uh, not only like with as a researchers we have developed this emotional connection with the animal over the years but the family structure they have uh, it is mostly a maternal family structure and the bond between the mother and the calf it is so beautiful it is so special that uh, you maybe people would imagine having the bond with their own mother it is as special as that and we should always recognize that these animals also will have uh, their their life and we kind of are interfering in it so maybe we need to hold ourselves a little back and see what we are doing to the families very good thank you so much what we do say a few things uh, we also celebrate world dugong day on uh, 20th may of every year so we have a huge month of uh celebration that we conduct we uh, carry out some uh, activities in the field so please stay tuned on our uh, social okay. media website where we keep on updating our uh, activities and we uh, on the month from on the month there was a school teacher chanchu uh, singa roy he wrote a book on dugong my friend uh, so we have translated that in the regional languages and we do uh, circulate in the schools so that copy is also available on the website if somebody wants to check hey guys that is fantastic you all rock really see amazing so this is so much you're doing i'm really genuinely grateful for you all coming on this interview and speaking your hearts and minds and sharing everything you know honestly i learned so much and i really feel like going out there and checking these places out where you all work <laughs> You're always welcome. Please come.